and did God create the heavens and earth? Um, or was it evolution? How, how did we really come to be? Where did we come from? Like, where did the universe come from? It brought me to a point where I had to dig deeper past the surface of God created the heavens and earth. I think sometimes I struggle believing that God's grace covers everyone and every situation and every single sin. There's just not an answer for everything. I believe in the healing God, but my situation speaks contrary to that. The pain was overwhelming. I didn't really know if he was there. Why won't he heal me? Why won't he hear me? There are just so many things in the world that unexplained you would wonder how a loving, forgiving God would even allow to happen. I don't understand how someone can just give up and give in and, again, blindly trust and uh, blindly have faith in something. One thing I really struggled with and wrestled in the Bible was the fact that the devil exists. If God is good, why did he let my cousin die? You know, why did he let my parents uh, split apart? All right, good to see everybody today. Y'all doing all right? You look good. I don't know how you're doing, but you look good from where I stand. Um, Grab your Bibles. We are in our series looking at doubts of faith and Christianity, and we're continuing um, in our topic today. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, so grab your Bibles, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, then I would ask you to, uh, down the center column of seats are a couple Bibles underneath uh, that first seat there. Grab that and uh, look into it as we walk through the scriptures today. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to read these out loud together. Uh, You can join me. Let's read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, of whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not by a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for life, health, strength, for the gathering of your church for a brand new day. Um, Lord, uh, as we come to your word today, God, we pray that you would give us the right perspective of it, that it's authoritative, that it's infallible, it's inerrant, that it comes from you through the the, the hands of men, but no less inspired. So God, help us to receive your word, especially the word today uh, in that regard. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, uh, but mostly you would soften our hearts to, to hear 
Um, and Lord, for especially for those who are skeptical and who doubt about faith and and religion and especially Christianity, God, I pray that you would give them just room in their minds and in their hearts to to listen, uh, the ability to wrestle with what they perhaps might believe and what they disagree with, and uh, and give them room to have faith. And I pray that in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. So we are in a series a six-week series that we're calling Dealing with Doubt. This is week five, so next week we will will end it. And in this series, we are intending to look at those uh, most prominent ways that people, perhaps uh, all around the world, but particularly in our culture here in America, um, have doubts about faith, religion, and particularly uh, doubts about Christianity. Today, we're entertaining the, the hard question of why would a loving God send people to hell? All right, so y'all pray for me. Um, as we've done throughout this series, we want to look at this, uh, this, these particular issues. We want to look at them philosophically. We also want to look at them theologically. Um, but before we can do that with the, the topic of hell, we actually have to go through another kind of mega topic, and that's the topic of death and the afterlife. Um, the reality is, you will die. And that's a morbid way to start a sermon, isn't it? But here, if there's any consolation in this, we're all in this together. We're all going to die. Does that make you feel better? All right. I mean, it's just the truth. Death scares us. Uh, we don't know what to do with it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't even want to think about it. But when we're forced to think about death, we actually try to pretty it up to uh, you know, to, to just get ourselves to deal with it better. Uh, when we are getting close to death, either someone in your life or perhaps you yourself, we, uh, we sell everything that we have and we go and perhaps um, live in a retirement home so that we can live in ease and with those who perhaps can take care of us uh, as we're getting close to that moment where we can't take care of our own selves. And then at the moment of death, what do we do? We put someone in a box. But before we do that, and bury them six feet under the ground, we, we kind of pretty them up. We put the best clothes on them, perhaps their favorite clothes. We put a little makeup on them. We embalm them to try and preserve the way that they looked before death overcame them. And then we put them in the ground. And perhaps after we have buried them, you ever notice a cemetery is one of the most pristine places in, in our country? There's, I mean, there's not a lot of trash around. They're usually fenced off. We have nice green grass uh, overlaid on them. We put flowers there in memory of the person that died, and we put a monument to, to the days that they lived and what they might have meant to us. And then perhaps we might even say, well, that I mean, they died, they had a good life, they've gone on to a better place. Sometimes if we don't even know if they're going to go on to a better place, that might not be the case. We don't know what to do with death. And so here, I mean, just a seeming lot of questions that we could ask. Do you know what's going to happen to you after you die? Are you ready for death and whatever comes after it? More importantly, to whom will you trust to inform you of what death entails and um, how you should be prepared for death and beyond when it when it comes to you? Those are some of the questions that we want to look in today. There's basically six positions or theories that people have in regards to what happens when we die. The first are the the naturalists. If you are an agnostic or an atheist, you 
for the most part, uh, believe this naturalist point of view. Naturalists think that we have a body, but not a soul. So when you die, I mean, that's it. That's nothing else. It's like, a, uh, for those of you that are, that are gardeners, it's not one of those perennial plants that comes back every year. It's like an annual. You, you sow it, it germinates, it comes and it has its heyday in the, you know, the prime part of the, 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 the season, and then it's gone. It's like nothing else. That's the naturalist point of view. Universalists, they teach that somehow everyone is going to be saved and go to heaven when they die, no matter what they've done in this life. There's no ultimate conscious eternal hell in the end. We should have some issues with that one, right? I mean, think about, um, does it seem fair that rapists, pedophiles, murderers, thieves, I mean, the worst people on the planet um, that do all kind of heinous things should be able to get the reward of eternal life in heaven in the presence of God um, after doing all the things that they've done in this life. That one doesn't make sense to me. Reincarnationists, this is mostly the, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist point of view, believe that you die and you come back repeatedly until you pay off your karmic debt. Now that wouldn't, I mean, some of y'all might, that might sound appealing. That doesn't sound appealing to me because when you come back, you don't necessarily come back as what you were. And suppose you can't, suppose you existed in a life that, I mean, you had everything. And then you come back in a lesser state. I mean, who would want that? And so uh, under the, the reincarnationists, you're basically trapped in a cycle of rebirth and death where your only hope is that perhaps after millions and millions of attempts, you might finally get life right and escape into eternal oneness that they call nirvana, which basically uh, is the end of your personhood. Annihilationists would be the fourth uh, perspective, and annihilationists teach that the wicked cease to exist, and this is particularly oriented toward all those people in the history of the world that have been particularly evil. Life ends for them. That's it. They're snuffed out. There's no more life, uh, no life after the grave for them. Purgatory, many of you have heard of that, particularly if you've come from a Catholic background. Catholics prominent belief and teach that some die, not all, but some die. They go to purgatory and purgatory is this place or this state where you have the opportunity to to suffer a little bit because you're paying off um, or, or amassing enough credit to pay off all those unforgiven sins that you've committed in this life in hopes that you will eventually move on to be with Jesus in eternity in heaven forever. And then, of course, lastly, you have the, the biblical view. The Bible's view is there is a heaven, but there's also a hell that all of us will stand before the Lord with an eternal fate that's decided upon us. That's a judgment. There's a judgment for Christians. There's a judgment for non-Christians that's different from each other. So the Bible's concept and the afterlife hinges on verses like this one. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Any of, uh, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Two fates of man, both are going to be judged. Both are going to be live. Both are going to live eternally. One to life, one to contempt or or to death. And so the Bible says hell is the application of God's wrath. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that to unpack that in a couple seconds. And Jesus is the one, the only one that rescues us from this fitful life 
uh, in hell because of God's wrath. And it's this it's really this last point, this this point that um, that hell is the application of God's wrath and that Jesus is the only one that can save us from the wrath of God, that uh, that's where all the tension lies. And of course, that's where the objections lie. Um, I would tell you, it turns out the, the research proves this. The doctrine of hell is different based upon you're going to perceive it differently based upon where you've lived and, and how you've lived. These are generalizations, but um, depending on where you live and how you've culturally grown up, you're going to have different biases in regards to this concept of hell. Example, um, the concept of hell offends our cultural sensitivities in the Western world. Now, of course, these are per perhaps overgeneralizations. In the West, we want a God that's tolerant. We value tolerance. Okay, everybody, everybody deserves a fair shake. No one deserves to be judged. Um, and even if uh, they haven't lived life quite right, everybody deserves a second chance, right? I mean, we think things like that. In the West, we want not only a God that's tolerant, we say that the concept of hell is just plain out mean. I mean, why does God, if there is a God, have to be so mean? We, we question the judgment of external torment in hell for people who perhaps only sin for a few decades. Like, you're thinking, well, come on, I'm, I'm going to live like 70 years. That's 70, you know, 70 years, seven decades of, of bad stuff, you know, in, mixed in with some good stuff. Why would God put me in an eternal torment when I've only been bad for a few days out of a lot? Right. That's the thinking that a person that sometimes we have. Instead, this is what the world, the Western world embraces. We embrace the doctrine of forgiveness, that everybody messes up. And so everybody should be given a second chance. It's interesting that outside the Western world, hell actually makes a lot of sense. The doctrine of forgiveness, of turning the other cheek, is not as, accept, is as, as accept, accepted as it might be in the Western world. It doesn't make sense in places outside of the Western world to not be able to take it, uh, vengeance. They understand a God that avenges evil in the world, especially in those areas where people live lives of suffering and where evil is, is pervasive. A God that doesn't exact divine judgment and eventually put all things right would be offensive to people living outside of the Western world that that live amongst evil and lots of pain and suffering. So what this uh, firstly, what I'm trying to say is how we think about hell is the product of where we live. Here's a second thought about hell. And I've already said this once before, but it deserves emphasizing. Most people don't want to talk about it. When we talk about God, what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about uh an eternal deity that's loving and forgiving. OK, we want to talk about a God that's full of flowers and sprinkles. Right. I mean, that's that's kind of our impression of God. Most people want to talk about God to affirm that he loves us and that he is good. And if we're good, he's going to be good back to us. But perhaps the question underneath all the questions in regards to this topic of hell is how can God be both loving but also angry and full of wrath. Many of us don't understand that. Wrathful enough to create a place like hell. If God is a God of love, where does his anger come from? And that's a good question to ask. It's a question um, that creates a lot of quandary for all of us. And so I'm not going to necessarily answer all of your questions in regards to that, but 
just on that one issue, a God of love and a God of anger being in the same entity. Think about this. Think about this. It really is a false dichotomy to put anger and love against one another. They aren't meant to be mutually exclusive. I want you to do me a favor. Think about the most loving person that you have known in your entire life. You got that person in your mind? Think about it. Somebody, you got a picture in your mind? All right, so many of us, it would be a guardian, a mentor that we've known for a long time, perhaps your mom, a parent, someone that's been familial and that's taken care of us, that's been there when life has been hard, or just somebody that just loved us, loved us despite us. Um, I think of my grandmother, my grandmother on, on both sides, my, my great-grandmother on my paternal side, my grandmother uh, uh, maternal grandmother, both of who uh, had a pivotal uh, part of raising me as a young kid, both of whom, although I, I would say I was, a, I was a decent kid, not a good kid, but uh, man, they put up with some stuff from me, right? My brother and I, I mean, we were hellions. We were good hellions. <laughs> we were good hellions. And uh, you know how you do as a kid. I mean, you'll push the limits. You'll do the things that you think you can get away with. One day, I can't tell you what I did. One day, uh, I was, my cousin Randall and I had come back from, uh, we went to the same elementary school. We both stayed at my grandmother's house after school because her parents were, this is Durham, North Carolina. And uh, we had gotten into something. My grandma, grandma caught us. She took this racetrack, a racetrack. Remember the little flimsy racetracks? She like, if she, she's, she was in a wheelchair. So grandma, she couldn't go too far. She couldn't go too far. But if she could have like scooted a little bit faster, she would have like whooped us like a, a good old Southern beaten. And, and we deserved it based upon what we did. You can ask me what we did later. Um, so check it out. Grandma, loved, I loved my grandmother and my grandmother loved me. I knew she did. But there was some anger. And I would even say there's some wrath coming out of grandma in that one moment based upon what me and Randall did. Um, that, that really is my point. Sometimes the most loving, patient persons are also filled with wrath, not in spite of love, but because of it. They want better for us. Love and anger aren't mutually exclusive. Uh, if you love a person that you see unjustly getting hurt or foolishly hurting themselves, it's only natural that you would be angry and that you would want to do something about it. And it's the same way with God. Now, the word that the Bible uses to describe God's anger or his disposition of, you know, not necessarily overtly being nice to us is, is wrath. I shouldn't say it. No, or God is always kind to us. His, his grace is, is his greatest kindness to us, even his wrath. He's being kind to us in his wrath. Wrath means extreme anger, but in scripture it appears as God's holy hatred, holy hatred of sin. If that word is new to you, S-I-N, three-letter word, it simply means missing the mark. I like to explain it as you're, you got a bow and arrow in your hand, you're trying to shoot the target, trying to hit the bullseye, and instead of hitting the central point, you, you're spraying the arrows all around it. You've missed the target. You've missed God's perfection, which the Bible says he requires of us. That means you've sinned. And so God hates sin. He hates murder and rape and sexual abuse and deception and manipulation. I mean, that, I mean, we would call those big sins, right? He hates all sin. He hates your pride and your slander and your envy. He hates your favoritism. He hates your gossip. He hates your lying. He hates all that. And his wrath comes against, his anger is, it comes, it manifests against 
all those things. The Bible tells us that it does. Uh, Becky Pipper is an international speaker uh, at conferences. Uh, she's an author, and more importantly, she's an expert in this area of apologist, uh, apologetics. She has written this in her well-known book, Hope Has Its Reasons. Think of how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might toward strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, the cancer that's eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. What's she saying? She's saying God is angry at sin. He's angry at how sin manifests in his creation, and he does something about it. And perhaps the clearest verse conveying how God thinks about sin is in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, particularly verse 18. Here's what Paul says. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If we would keep reading, what Paul is doing is uh, unveiling for us what God thinks about sin. And here's what we need to know about sin. Sin is not just horizontal. We don't just sin against each other. Uh, we actually sin against God. And that God is offended by that. And it might be hard for us to comprehend exactly what we could do to offend or sin against a, uh, a transcendent God that we cannot even see. But the Bible makes note that we do that. We sin against each other, but we also sin against God. Uh, think of someone that you've served, perhaps even sacrificed for, that you've bent over backwards to love them and to, as best you can, love them unconditionally, only for that person to maybe dismiss you, turn against you, betray you, and how you feel in those circumstances. And then put yourself in, if you are able, in God's shoes. What must it have been like for God to create humanity as the pinnacle of his creation, love us, put us in a pristine environment, a perfect environment, and for, you know, humanity to rebel against God and do the very things against him um, that he expressed for us not to do. And all the ways that God was kind and graceful to humanity, and we just basically turn around and spit in his face. That's, I mean, that's the reaction that you would have against that. So Christian theology tells us that um, our sin has devastating consequences with regard to God. And that brings us to our text here in Ephesians. Paul's really saying the same thing. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I think Paul is essentially saying what the rest of the Bible says over and over again. It's saying we're sinners. We sin uh, by commission and omission. Commission, we commit acts that the Bible, that God in the Bible says we shouldn't do. We sin by omission. There are things that we don't do that we omit that we should do because God thinks they're right for us. 
Another way of articulating it is we sin because we're sinners by nature. An example, those of you that are parents or if you've ever been around a kid, right? Right. I mean, you don't have to teach kids to sin. They, it's inherent in them. Uh, I mean, what's a kid's favorite thing to say? Well, no. All right. So they, they say no first. Then they learn to say me, me, mine. It's mine. Don't touch it. They get, get into fights and you know, quarrels with their siblings because it's all mine. You don't have to teach a kid to lie. I don't know. I don't. There's like something that happens. Like I don't know. Around the two, when they can talk, they can, they they probably lying earlier if they could just like express it. <laughs> but definitely when they start to talk, they just figure out. You know what? If I say this or deny this, it may get me out of trouble with you know whoever the authority figure in their life is. And so they just start it. They just start lying, and it's inherent to them. So we sin by by nature. We also sin by choice. That's, it goes back to to commission. We just choose to do things that we know inherently. We don't even need Bible to tell us. We just know um, there's things that we do that we know are wrong. And this is what the verse in Romans was really talking about. In, in fact, Romans would tell us that truth comes our way. And what do we do? We, we suppress it. We push it away. We, we don't want the truth. We, we might want a partial truth. Ha- give me a half truth. But we don't really want all the truth. We don't want to live by it. Here's the third thing that Paul is saying in this, these first three verses, particularly verse two. He's saying we have aligned with God's enemy. That's the language in verse two that says that we have uh, submitted ourselves to the prince of the power of the air, which is uh, a reference to Satan. And so Paul's saying we're sinners by choice. We're sinners by nature. We've aligned ourselves with God's enemy. And because of this, Christian theology tells us that human beings deserve to be separated from God eternally. A righteous, holy, transcendent God hates sin. And we are sinners. And he, I mean, he naturally does not want to be around that sin. And he's prepared to punish it forever. Rebellious sinners deserve to be in hell. And that sounds harsh. But if you know who God is, based upon what the Bible tells us that he is, then that that's just the truth. Justice is that we're cast from God's presence. That's what happened to Adam and Eve, because essentially we've said with our lives. All right. So, Lord, thank you for creating me. Thank you for all that you've done to get me where I am. Uh, I'm going to live life on my own. I'm going to be my own boss. I'll get in touch with you when I need you. God extends his loving grace. He's always extending a hand to us, and we're giving him the finger. You see what finger I'm choosing? It's my pinky finger, right? God is extending grace to us, and if we could, we would give him the finger and say, hey, I'll do my own thing. And that's what sin has done um, with respect to our relationship with God. Here's some good news. Thank God that Paul didn't stop writing right there. Thank God that he encouraged Paul to give us the other side of of this problem that we have. Verse four, Paul says, but God, there's a sermon in, in those two words, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. I mean, you know what but means. It's a conjunction. He's, he's connecting the two, um, the two parts of his paragraph. This is who you are. This is who you were. But you're no longer like that. You don't have to be any longer like that. It's like, on the other hand, this is what God offers you. In spite of your sin and rebellion, God overcomes our sin problem. How? With grace. Grace is God loving us despite us. God, it's great. It's God's unmerited favor. It's mercy, not justice. And because of grace, the Bible teaches us that God's disposition, his heart, is, is like these verses here. First, Thess- First Thessalonians 5, 9. For by grace you have been destined. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or what P- for us, Second Peter says, Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. These verses and others articulate God's heart for you. God has prepared an eternity for all of us. I mean, our souls will live forever. Other parts of Scripture will tell us. You will go on. Though your your flesh will die, you will go on. What's God's heart? That we would be in his presence forever. That's his heart. And that, hopefully, is good news for all of you. So here's the question. Does that mean that we don't have to worry about hell? Y'all can answer. Well, if you're a Christian, no. Yeah, you don't have to worry about it. But we should at least think about it. I mean, all of us deserve to think about it. So, I mean, what is hell? Have you ever thought about that? What is hell? Perhaps a better question is, a first question would be, some would ask, why would God create a place of eternal torment to send people to anyway? I mean, if God is loving again, I mean, why, why would he create a place like this? And that confuses us. Matthew tells us, Matthew 25, Matthew, uh, Matthew, 20, Matthew 25 is one of those great chapters that you should read because it talks about future judgment. What happens in the end? And Jesus is actually uh, unwinding this, this, this picture of when he returns to, to judge the living and the dead, he's going to come with, with angels. He's going to come and uh, as he's judging the world, he's going to divide the people of the earth uh, on his right and on his left. Sheep, because sheep is a sign of those who have followed, followed Jesus on his right and on his left, those who are goats. And he'll welcome those who are on his right. And to those on his left, he'll say these words. Then he'll say to me on his left, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. What's, I mean, why did God create hell? He didn't really necessarily create it for humanity. He created it for Satan and his minions, right? That's, that's why he created hell, not necessarily for human beings. But then we have, the, I mean, just a, a wealth of language in the, in the Bible of where it gives us a picture of what hell is like. Fire, darkness, punishment, restlessness, second death, weeping, gnashing of teeth. I mean, hell, the, the picture is hell is a place of torment, of suffering. And, and, and it's supposed to be a place of, of pain. Jesus talked more about hell in the Bible than he did about almost any other topic. 
Definitely he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. He talked, um, I mean, really exclusively about it, giving us some detail in regards to what it would be like. And oftentimes the language would include a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was a location outside of Jerusalem, and we would call it, uh, we would uh, compare it to a dump. It's where refuse was taken. It's where uh, the dead bodies of those who uh, had no one to claim them or those who were convicts that were executed, so, so to speak, were, were taken. It was set on fire, as most trash heaps are, and it was made to burn perpetually. And so the picture of Gehenna was this trash heap and refuse. I mean, the, 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 the Israelites could look outside of Jerusalem. They could look at Gehenna and see this perpetually burning um, heap of rubbish and trash. And that's the picture that we're supposed to have of hell, a place of eternal uh, lasting torment. Now, this might surprise you. I'm going to turn the angle here. You know, the Bible gives us this horrifying picture of hell, but most scholars tell us that, I mean, this, this language of, of fire and brimstone is metaphorical. Now, some of you are going like, my Lord. I mean, who wants to burn in hell, right? But, but hear me with this. It's not that there's not a place called hell, the language is the Bible is giving us this this fire and brimstone hellish tormenting language because it's what we understand. The Bible is trying to paint a picture of of the worst possible scenario of something that lasts forever. And it's not only uncomfortable, it's horrible. It's terrifying. And so that's why you get the, the fire and the restlessness and the second death, the weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. The picture of hell actually is it's worse than the picture that the Bible is painting for us, which should make all of us sigh. It's like, wow. In Tim Keller's book, which is the, the book that we're using uh, to structure our series, he calls it Reason for God. He gives us a different picture of the concept of hell. We think of fire and brimstone, but here is... Uh, some of uh, some of the experts that Keller quotes to describe what hell is, not necessarily fire and brimstone, but in other language. Uh, he quotes, a common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and the distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell then is the tra- uh, trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Interesting perspective. Hell would be Whatever identity I take on, a particular identity that's not necessarily what the Bible would espouse for me to take on, a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed identity that never ends. And I just consume myself with that. That's hell. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, describes a busload of people who, who are in hell for whatever reason. They've been put in the bus and they've been transported on the very outskirts of heaven, and they're encouraged, repent, uh, repent and ask God for forgiveness 
of all those leftover sins so that you can eventually make your way into heaven. And they refuse. And he goes on to quote this in his in his book. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. I mean, he's describing in many ways who we are from the inside. And, and, and what he's saying is, it's kind of ugly. And if you don't do something, something doesn't intervene, then it's going to over, not just consume you, overtake you, and that's going to become hell. Keller comments, the people in hell are miserable, and here's why. We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humanity is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. That's hell. Hell is not just fire and brimstone of, of eternal torment. It's you commiserating in the worst possible way in all the worst parts of yourself and that just consuming you for end of days. What, I mean, what, what's worse? What, can you imagine anything worse than that? And so here's what this, I mean, the conclusion of this is it would be an inaccurate picture for us to paint a picture that God is sending someone to hell as if God uh, is, we're, we're screaming Pleading to God, Lord, don't send me to hell. I don't deserve it. That's that's an inaccurate picture. The picture that Keller and some of the experts that he's quoting definitely C.S. Lewis writing is the people that go to hell deserve to be there. In fact, they've picked it. They've they've select. They've chosen that for themselves. The the people on C.S. Lewis's bus that are on the brink of of heaven. All they have to do is for ask for forgiveness for their sins and repent toward God. Those people have chosen their own freedom over the salvation that God has offered them. And that freedom is going to lead them to hell. And so if you know your Bible, I mean, this this takes us again back to Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 18 through the rest of the chapter, the message of Romans 1 is that God says the greatest judgment on an ungodly, unrighteous humanity is to let us do whatever the hell we want. Forgive my pun, but it was intended. We resist God's truth. God gives us over, Paul says in Romans 1, to our lust, to our passions, to our debased minds. And so judgment is to let us do what we want. And that's hell. Hell is the greatest monument to our own personal freedom. C.S. Lewis goes on to say in his book, Great Divorce, there's really two kinds of people and only two kinds. There's the the one person that that will say, thy will be done to God. And then those people who God will say in the end, thy will be done. You're going to get what you deserve. And what you deserve is hell. And so we have to ask ourselves, What would cause us to choose 
our personal freedoms that would lead to that, that kind of hell, over the gift of salvation that God offers us? And I think the answer is, again, the three-letter word, S-I-N, sin. Sin is one of those things that we love too much to stop. It's like a drug. That, that's why the, um, the reality TV show Crave, that's, I mean, we love that stuff because it, I mean, it just feeds an appetite. But what those shows really point out more than anything is the addiction that not only the people on the shows have to their self-centeredness, but it shows our, I mean, our love for that stuff as well. And so it's like a drug that alters the pleasure center of our brain. After so much of it, we can't even stop if we want it to, you know, at least not without some kind of intervention. God's intervention by the Holy Spirit. Sin messes up our soul chemistry, which causes us to never want to leave sin and never want to leave the places that sin takes us. Sin promises pleasure and freedom, but it ends in bondage. And that's why Paul starts Ephesians chapter two, verse one, with you were dead in your sin. Because sin left unchecked, the deadness grows exponentially in our hearts and consumes our lives if we allow it. And it will do that into eternity, a negative eternity. All right. So, all right, I'm getting off my hobby horse. Hopefully that gives you a little bit more insight into the philosophy and the theology of hell. I'm going to end on a practical note. Two minutes left. Here's my question. Are you going to hell? I can't get more practical than that. You know what? Every once in a while, we should ask ourselves that question. Am I going to hell? The thought of judgment and hell stand as warnings to us. That's what the Bible is doing. When it gives us this this clear, ugly language about, about hell. Again, listen to the language. Fire, burning, disintegration, grinding, gnashing of teeth, remorse, weeping, sorrow. It sounds like the Bible is trying to scare us, isn't it? It is. The Bible is trying to scare the hell out of you. Seriously, God is trying to scale the hell out of you so that you will see how bad it is and will not want it. You want to go the exact opposite direction. And even if hell is metaphorical, the Bible is painting a picture of this is something that you do not want. You don't want it. And so if if the, the biblical picture of hell is not scaring you, you're, you aren't paying attention. You aren't listening. Open up your ears, open up your eyes, and read it for yourself. And I would tell anyone that asks that question, you know, why would a loving God send you know, people to hell? You're not supposed to like this topic. You're supposed to believe it. And by believing it, you would turn from the sin that's sending you to hell to the Jesus that can save you. And so we have to talk about this idea of hell. We have to listen to what the Bible is saying about hell because it's the most compassionate talk that we can give to people who are on their way to hell. So let me finish up with this. Two thoughts. John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is offering us two types of life, eternal life or eternal wrath. Jesus himself says in John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life. that They know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The commonality in those two verses, eternal life. That's what God is offering us. And here's what he says it is. 
it's not just living forever, although that's going to be pretty cool. It's knowing God. It's experientially knowing God. If we would have seen Adam and Eve in the garden, we would have, I mean, it would have, we would have wanted what they had because they were with God forever, just in close proximity. Just, I mean, them and him and all of creation in harmony with each other. But here's the scary thing. If experientially knowing God is, is what eternal life is, then the very opposite of that is is eternal death and separation from God. That's the thing that the Bible would say you don't want. The life that God wants for us is not eternal death and separation. It's eternal life in his presence. And I I think that's what God's heart is. And I think that's what Paul gets at in the last verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Not the last verse, verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word that pops out to me uh, in that verse is workmanship. It sounds archaic, doesn't it? It's not. It's just the, it's, it's a simple word. Greek means poema. Uh, it means we're, we're made. God's done something. Particularly, it means that God has created us. That's a, a word unique to the Bible. No one else creates. Everybody else is taking something that already existed and refashioning from that. God created us. What that means is, is that God created you to be a blessing. He created you for himself. God didn't create you to be on your own, doing your own thing in dismissal of himself. Scripture warns us over and over about about hell for a reason, because God is inviting us into a relationship with him. And that's him giving us his best. And so I would finish up by by saying. If you're one of those that would ask the question, how can a loving, good God send people to hell? You've dismissed. The fact that God in his grace sent his son, his only son from an eternity into this world that we live in, that he would live our life, walk our roads, eat our food in condescension of who he actually was, and that he would substitute himself on a cross, dying in our place for our sin so that he can give you life while he takes your death, that he would bless you while he takes your curse, that he would offer you salvation while he takes all those things that we're destined for without, without that. That's what God gives us. He gives us salvation when we deserve hell. And so my encouragement would be, if you're a skeptic, if you doubt, you got to deal with this because you just can't dismiss all the Bible says about hell. What if we don't live forever after we die? What's God's offer? He's offering you eternal life, but not just eternal life. He's offering you himself in his presence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Hell's a scary topic, Lord. Um, I don't even like talking about it. I pray that you would help us to deal with these words in our, in our minds, but more in our hearts. If there's someone in here that, um, that doesn't know you, uh, I pray that you would impress them uh, upon the, the biblical fact that the Bible says that they are in sin and they're going to hell. But there is a way out, and it's through Jesus. 
It's through his work and it's through person. It's death on the cross where he absorbs the wrath of God in our place and offers us for trusting in him eternal life, not eternal death. Life with him, not life separated from him. God, I pray that we would want that. That when we have opportunity, we would talk about it. And that more than just eternal life, we would look forward to um, experiential knowledge of you forever. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.